Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at some things here. The first things. First things are things that we celebrate, the first steps that a child takes, my first job. These things are memorable to us. And today, we're going to see the first Sabbath, the first garden, the first law, and the first marriage. We'll only cover the first three points today and hang on to your study guide. And we'll take a look at the first law and the first marriage on next Sunday. When I was a little boy, six years of age, my family moved from the Mississippi Gulf Coast up to the Piney Woods in the central part of the state to a little town named Laurel, Mississippi. And the house that we moved into was situated right in front of a huge undeveloped park. It was just big woods behind my house, maybe 50 acres. And I grew up in that park. I loved to be in the woods. And I guess that's where I got to love for God's creation. I just like to be outdoors. Now, some people might say I was underprivileged in those days because I had no electronic games, no Internet, no television, no VCR, but I had God's Word taught to me as a child, and I had God's creation. And as I look back, I see that that was a great blessing, perhaps more than some of the other things would have been of which I was deprived at that time because they hadn't been invented yet. That was a long time ago. We did get a television shortly after that. So I thank God for the blessing. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. There's a lot that we can learn from the creation. Last Sunday, we studied the first chapter of Genesis, and I want to summarize what we looked at there with some alternatives regarding the beginning, where did it all come from? And I'm kind of summarizing what we said last Sunday. Darwinian evolution, the something that came out of nothing over billions of years became everything that you see today. That's one possibility. Many would adhere to that in this day and time. Theistic evolution. God made the raw materials, but then the process rolled along randomly, creating itself with a little help from God when needed. I see really no reason for that alternative other than a weak attempt to kind of marry up the Bible with Darwinian evolution. That would be my opinion. But then we see divine creation. The sovereign, all-powerful God created the universe and everything in it in six 24-hour days without the help of evolution. There was no progression of one species to another, no need to twist the scriptures to make them say something that is just not there. I don't care what anybody tells you, the Bible teaches divine creation. God made it all in six days, and on the seventh day, he pronounced, it is finished. How would you answer the contention that Genesis chapter 2 is in conflict with Genesis chapter 1? Because in chapter 2, we see some things coming up that we've already covered back in chapter 1. I would suggest to you that Genesis chapter 1 gives some details of things quickly. 
God made this and He made that and let the earth bring forth the beasts and the waters bring forth the fish. And He's moving pretty quickly, but in chapter 2, He kind of pulls out the magnifying glass to focus upon the really important theme of Scripture. And the important theme of Scripture is man created in God's image and then the redemption of fallen man. So we're moving to greater detail in chapter 2, and we'll look at God's creation of man. It's a little broader view. The primary creation account in chapter 1 closes with a statement, and this statement pronounces God's assessment of the creation. And we saw it last Sunday. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then the opening chapter, uh, the opening verse of chapter 2 confirms that everything had been completed. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. Now Genesis 2.2 may sound like God could have been finishing up the job on the seventh day. We wouldn't want God working on His own Sabbath, would we? And neither would the translators from the Septuagint, of the Septuagint from the uh, Hebrew language into the Greek, so they changed some of the words. They altered seventh day to sixth day in verse 2 so that God would not be working on the Sabbath. But I don't think there's any necessity for that. The Hebrew word translated ended in verse 2 as the same root as the word finished in verse 1. But the stem used in verse 2 for ended is sometimes declarative so that we might say he declared, finished his work. And that eliminates the difficulty. And if you have a modern translation, it may be a little clearer to present that line of reasoning. Genesis 2.2 in the New International Version, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. Kenneth Taylor, in his paraphrase, puts it well. So on the seventh day, having finished his task, God ceased from this work He had been doing. But I like the complete Jewish Bible on this verse. makes it very clear. On the seventh day, God was, was finished with His work which He had made, so He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. Now we come to the first Sabbath. The seventh day is mentioned three times in the first three verses of chapter 2. When God says something three times, it must be important. What is it significant about the seventh day? Four verbs are connected with this seventh day, finished, rested, blessed, and sanctified. We want to understand how these words relate to the seventh day and if that has any meaning for us today. Finished. What does that word mean? I'm finished with the task. 
Everything God made was declared finished and completed by the seventh day. And I believe the days of the week were 24-hour days complete with evening and morning. It talks about all the host of them being completed. Sometimes in Scripture, the host refers to the stars of the universe. If that's true, then all the universe was complete, and I believe this refers to everything that God made. Everything was finished in six days. There were no ongoing instances of new creation coming forth except the creation of a new heart in man that we talked about. God was finished with his creation. He said it was good. And you can see that in verses 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25 of chapter 1. But now he is declaring it is very good. We might say it is exceedingly good. Because the great consummator has consummated his project according to his plan. And the plan is finished. I believe to seek to attribute God's work of creation to evolution is to discredit God's word and to dishonor him. If things are still evolving, then the heavens and the earth are not finished, but God has pronounced them finished. Remember, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction, correction, and so forth. And that includes the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If God can't get it right with creation, then we've got some problems on down the line, including the words of Christ that base some things on God's creation. Rested. Hey, that's a good word we like. Was God tired when he finished his very busy work week? The answer is no. Isaiah 40 and verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. We might should underline verse 29 in our Bibles. To him who lacks might, he increases power. He doesn't lose any power when he gives power. When God works, there's no loss of potentiality or might or force. He had just as much power left on the seventh day as he did when he began that week of creation on the first day. So as we noted in first light, God has plenty of power to do whatever needs to be done to change individuals or to change nations. Then why does the passage say that he rested? What does that mean? The word is Shabbat. And that means basically to sever or to put an end to. It means that he desisted from his creation. It was finished, and he didn't do any more work. On the seventh day, rested, the word rested marks the end of the creation, not recuperation from exercise or loss of energy. It's just the end. Now, one of the uses of Shabbat means to celebrate, to cause to celebrate. 
So the concept of God celebrating his finished creation, I believe, is mentioned in another part of Scripture. Exodus 31, 17. It is a sign, the Sabbath. This is a little different Sabbath over in Exodus, and we'll talk about that later. This morning we're talking about the creation Sabbath, but the Jewish Sabbath is based upon the creation Sabbath. So it's a sign between me, says God, and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased, and we know he ceased from his labor, and was refreshed. What does the word refreshed mean to a Hebrew? We know what it means to us. To the Jewish people at that time, it held the idea of satisfaction, of delight, of rejoicing, of celebration. Can you remember the first Sunday that we came from the barn into the new sanctuary? And we had some guys up there singing up in the balcony. And that was a day that was very refreshing to me. It was a day of rejoicing. It was a day of delight. And I suspect that no one in the entire church was recovering from exhaustion or lack of energy except Tom and Cody. The rest of us were just celebrating. But they were guys who did all the work that you see and the planning and the implementing of the plans. So I think that that's kind of like the use of this word refresh. God was refreshed. It was not that he was tired, but he was celebrating the beautiful creation. It's as if on the first Saturday of the creation week, that would have been the seventh day, God surveyed the bright blue sky and the deep blue sea and the effervescent diamonds of sunlight sparkling on the water and the fresh air and the stunning beauty and variety of animals galloping around in a lush green pasture where they're not trying to eat each other. And God looks at all that and he says, this is exceedingly good. I think that's what we're talking about here on this first day. Everything was in perfect balance and magnificence. There were no millions of fossils lying around under the rocks representing untold millennia of sickness and disease and earthquakes and old age and death and all of those things that we know came in after Adam's sin. If that's your idea of the God of all grace and mercy, then no wonder you wouldn't want to serve that kind of God who is going to put the creation that he said was very good through millennia of sickness and death before we even get to man being created. It just doesn't make sense according to the biblical record. Well, then God does something else. He blessed the creation and He sanctified it. This is how God assigns special significance to this special day. He blessed the seventh day. He made it a blessing. He sanctified it. His special favor was bestowed upon this day. These two verbs, blessed and sanctified, are closely related to each other. There is the passage in verse 3. Sanctified, kodash, 
means to be set apart. And we know about that. We've studied that. This is the first time in the Scripture that the word holy is used, translated sanctified here, set apart by God. God has set apart this seventh day. It's in some way, the day is in some way expressive of the character of God. It's sacred as opposed to the common. The sanctified seventh day is declared to be included now in the sphere of the holy, according to God. Now, remember, at this point, man has not been mentioned. We'll get to that. Blessing refers to the act of conferring some kind of good upon the object being blessed. How do you bless a period of time? He blessed the seventh day and sanctified. How do you bless a period of time? Well, you bless it the same way that we bless December 25th. We set it aside as a memorial. We celebrate on that day the birth of Christ. It may be abused, but I love Christmas Day. And it's a time to celebrate. We remember the birth of Christ every day. But that's a special time that has been set aside. It's significant. It's memorable. I think God set up this seventh day as a memorial to His creation. Think of how God has done that with other periods of time. What year is this? 2012. But is that B.C. before Christ? or Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Well, certainly it's A.D., 2012 A.D. As far as I know, it's 2012 A.D. all over the world. It has been, there have been attempts made to change that. In the year 1792, the French decided this will be year one, and they got a new calendar. That did not last every long, uh, very long. You may not want to remember the Anno Domini part, wherever you are, but there it is. It's a testimony to the Savior who came to this earth. Now, what about the week? Where did the week originate? Can you divide 7 into 365? That doesn't fit too well. If you divide 7 into a month, you come out with something left over. There's nothing in nature that runs in seven-day cycles. Where did this seven-day business come from? It came from this passage that we're considering here, and then you see it later on in Leviticus as God gives the law. It, things are set up on weeks. And so far as I know, it's that way all over the world. Today is Sunday all over the world. Why is that? People may not like it, but it's a testimony to God and His creation. That's how God puts special favor on a period of time, and that's what He did with the seventh day. Now, notice we said here there's no mention of man. There's no talking in this section about man uh, ceasing to work or man resting or any of that. There's no talk in Abraham's day about man resting on a seventh day. That comes later on in the Mosaic Covenant. So we might talk about that when we get a little bit further. But right now we're talking about God's Sabbath, the creation Sabbath here in the second chapter of Genesis. Now, what is significant then about this creation Sabbath? We see something on the seventh day missing 
that is present for every other day. What is it? Evening and morning. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And right on up through the sixth day. But then when we come to the seventh day, we don't see evening and morning. Now, could this possibly represent the Mesozoic age that began supposedly 265 million years ago and ran down to 65 million years ago? Well, no, it couldn't represent that. Because before we had the Mesozoic age, we had to have the Permian-Triassic event, which allegedly resulted in the largest mass extinction of creatures in the history of the world. And you see, Adam hadn't come yet, so there is no sin, so there is no death or any of those other things that would cause mass extinction. The creation is functioning as God has intended it to function, and it is exceedingly good. Well, no, I believe there's another reason why evening and morning is not mentioned on this seventh day. And I believe it's because God's Sabbath celebration for him was not ending. It was going on until the time when Adam sinned. Now, we don't know how long a period of time that was that Adam and Eve were in the garden before the serpent comes to temptation and sin enters the world and everything then is changed to come under the curse. But I believe that until that sin, that first sin came, God is just rejoicing in His very good creation. Now the Scripture doesn't say that, but I think there are some things that might indicate that that is the point. Evidently, after sin comes... God has to go back to work, to his providential government of everything going on in the world. And then, of course, Jesus is upholding everything by the word of his power. And we do see in the New Testament, John 5, 17, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. But soon the work will be done, and there will be rest. And we, as believers, will enter into that rest. Now, we know something of rest now because Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I can have rest in my spirit when about me circumstances are in chaos or upheaval or things that I really don't like. I can still be calm and refreshed in my spirit. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we have to get the Word and get out in creation and take a long walk and kind of get refreshed again. But then one day, we're coming to what is described in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, this will be one place some people get the idea of falling from grace, that you can have salvation and you can just fall out of it. I don't believe that would be the case if you really have true salvation. 
If your faith fizzles at the finish, I think it was faulty from the first. And yet there are plenty of warnings for us to examine ourselves to see if we're really on the team, if we really have this salvation, and if we really have this rest that Christ has promised to us. Now we come to the close of the account of the first week of creation. You will remember that the chapters and verses of Scripture are not inspired. They were added in about the 1200s. And I really think we probably should have ended chapter 1 about four verses into chapter 2. In verse 4 it says, These are the generations of the heavens of the earth and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now that word generations or toledoth is used 11 times in the book of Genesis. And every time you come to that, these are the generations of Jacob and so forth. It's a division. And here we have a division that is finished with this verse, the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to hear some more about how God did it and what man is supposed to do. But here the creation of the heavens and the earth would be finished. This term might represent a subscript or kind of a closing signature. It might be that some ancient historian wrote down this record and then Moses edited that and under the direction of the Holy Spirit wrote it as he wrote the Pentateuch, uh, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know that that's the case, but that's what it might possibly be. Now we come to the first garden, and we see now that there are some different things in that day than there are now. The hydrologic cycle is different. The earth was watered by a mist that rose from the ground at that time. We'll talk more about that as we go further. What about the creation of man? How is it described in Genesis chapter 2 that we did not get in Genesis chapter 1? Well, we see three things here. Verse 7, man's body was formed out of the dust. Man was distinct and unique, created in God's image. He was formed rather than God just bringing it up out of the earth like he did the rest of the animals. You remember, and God said, let there be, and boom, there it was. But now God is forming the man, and he's forming him in his image. We talked about the last Sunday what that means. We can think the thoughts of God after him. Well, man is made out of dirt. That ought to cure any humanistic pride that we have, wouldn't it? Woman is made out of man. But man is made out of dirt. The second thing it tells us is that God breathed into man the breath of life. He activated the body so that the body began to breathe after he had formed it. Man became a living being or a living soul. Now, here is Paul speaking. Uh, Paul, uh, we hope, would be uh, correct about his beliefs with regard to what's going on in the Old Testament. And he says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, which is Christ, was made a quickening spirit. And when a person comes to Christ in repentance and faith, then there is a new creation. We call it the new birth. The spirit of Christ comes inside that person as a quickening spirit 
and we have a new attitude and we have a new ability to do what we ought to do and we have a new awareness of the things that are right and wrong as we study God's Word. Well, after his creation, what happened to man? He was placed in a garden eastward in Eden and there God put the man whom he had formed. We see more about that in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. There were some trees growing in the garden, and these are going to be significant in our later studies. There were those trees pleasing to the sight, maybe some nice maple trees. I'm not sure how they changed colors because I don't think they had a lot of temperature variation but God could have taken care of whatever he wanted it to be, and there were those pleasing to sight. There were those that were good for food. Imagine what that fruit must have tasted like in the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of life, I think a literal tree that was a symbol or a memorial of the life that God had given to man. And then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's what John Calvin says about that tree. This was given to man so that he might not seek to be wiser than became him, nor by trusting to his own understanding cast off the yoke of God and constitute himself an arbiter and judge of good and evil. That's our problem today, is it not, in our culture. We want to decide what is good and what is evil. And we don't go by the scripture because we're smart enough now to tell for ourselves. What's good and evil? Same problem as Adam and Eve. Now, beside the mist in that day, there was a river flowing out of Eden that watered the garden. So things were well taken care of there. We get an early indication in verse 5 as to what Adam's vocation is going to be right at this time. He's going to have the work of cultivating the land and tending the garden. We also see something about that later in verse 15. But he's given another project besides cultivating the garden and keeping it. And this would have been a very fulfilling process. None of the squash bugs that eat up your garden, none of the tomato wilt, any of that sort of thing. Everything is working just like it was intended in Adam's garden. But he has another job. Does your dog or cat have a name? Where did he get that name? You gave him that name. Now, you know, in the Hebrew culture, names really meant something. You probably named your dog a name that fit his personality or the way he acted or whatever. So Adam is given the task here of naming names. He's going to name all of the animals. Now, the critics rise up on this one. So we better have a good answer. They say Adam could have not possibly named every animal and bird in the whole world in just a few hours on the sixth day before Eve was created. Because we see in chapter 2 that that's how it happened. Adam was naming the animals and God let him know that these animals were likely in pairs and he needed a helper as well. He needed a mate and we see that in chapter 2. So how are we going to fit Adam naming all the animals in one afternoon? And they would say, see there, that can't be done. This represents a period of time. Well, here would be some things to consider. The scripture says, 
every beast of the field. It didn't say he was going to name every beast of the entire earth. In Genesis 1.24, as mentioned, every beast of the earth is what God created. Here's another reason. God likely brought to Adam, the scripture says he brought to Adam, he likely brought the animals that would be in and around the Garden of Eden. Because if you had a stampede of every animal in the world coming into the garden, it wouldn't be a garden for very long. So probably Adam is going to name the animals that will be a part of the garden, in and out of the garden, in the surrounding territory. It doesn't say that, but we see that there are no fish named at this point. That would have been a little difficult. God can do anything. So I think Adam was not naming every animal in the entire creation. He could have named eight or ten kinds of animals per minute, I suppose. And if he did that, he could have covered about 3,000 in five hours. Now, he would have to be clicking right along, but remember, Adam was brand new. He wasn't worn out. He didn't need any five-hour energy drink. He was rolling right along. Adam, I believe, likely had superhuman intelligence, superhuman intelligence before the fall. And so he can see an animal and know what it looks like and know what the name is supposed to be, and there it is. That's the name. And then finally, I believe that God likely created two, Canis lupus, a male and female, instead of 300 kinds of dogs and wolves and coyotes that we have today. Well, didn't they evolve since Adam? No, they're still all species, subspecies of Canis lupus. None have turned into lions, tigers, or giraffes. But you see, in two billion years... They might turn into lions and tigers. That's what it takes to kind of stretch your thinking to wrap it around that concept that my dog is going to one day be an elephant or wherever he is headed. So Adam, created in God's image, I believe had plenty of time to name the creation. And he didn't have to worry about any of them biting him while he was doing the naming. Well, in closing, let me point out uh, one other difference between man and the animals besides being created in God's image, besides being formed instead of just brought out of the earth. Every living thing that God has made lives one day at a time except man. And what do we do? Well, we often run around in a frenzy looking for more and better and we're so busy working on whatever's happening right now, and I'm guilty of this too, that we don't make any preparation for our departure. Now, isn't that something? We're here in this creation for about this long, but we're going to be in eternity forever and ever and ever. We better be making some preparation for that time. In fact, in eternity, we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth, and this present earth is going to be recreated so that it would be very good again. So I have a suggestion for you. It's as if God said, you want to know something about what I'm like? Then take a look at the creation as I made it. Now, it's a little bit different now, but you'll have to admit there's some beautiful sights in creation. So here's my recommendation. On Saturday... If you get a chance, any Saturday, 
get out in the great outdoors and celebrate God's finished work of creation. Go out to the lake or down to the creek or climb a mountain or enchanted rock if that's the closest you can get. Or go down to some isolated beach where there's not a hubbub of activity and just enjoy the creation. And take a little Bible with you and turn to the book of Psalms because it talks in there about the Creator. And it also talks about worshiping Him. Contemplate the magnificent theater of God's testimony to man. The earth, the skies, the seas, the rivers, the animals. And then meditate on the goodness and power and creativity and wisdom and glory of God. That's on Saturday. Then on Sunday, come to church and get together with God's people to celebrate the finished work of redemption completed by the Savior on Friday, the sixth day. Then on the Sabbath day, He rested. Then on the first day of the week, He came forth with power to rule over this fallen universe. Do you see the parallel? There is our verse. Saturday symbolizes the glory of God and His finished creation. Sunday symbolizes the glory of Christ and His finished creation. Have you been redeemed? Has redemption changed your life? That's one way you can tell if you've really been redeemed. Paul says, examine yourself. See if the Spirit of Christ is living in you. If it is, you'll see something of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. You'll see something of the 1 Corinthians 13 chapter of love. And the Bible defines love. You'll see something of the Beatitudes coming forth in your life. If you've never made that commitment to Christ, this would be an excellent time to do so. All you have to do is confess your sin. Tell Christ you want to turn from your sin with His help. Commit your life to Him. Ask Him to come in through His Spirit, His living Spirit, and take control of your life and make you the kind of person that He wants you to be. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank You for this amazing creation. I thank You that uh, even as a young boy, You gave me a love for the outdoors. And Lord, I confess today that uh, when I look at the creation, I am reminded of You, particularly the mountains. Thank you, Lord, for reminders that you give us every day and all throughout our lives, the days of the year, the weeks of the year, the year itself, and all of those things that point to you. Oh, we hear a lot of naysayers who tell us that it's not really that way, but we have this book and we thank you for the Bible that testifies to the truth. And we thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus, who came here to testify to the truth. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that this might be the time of your touching their hearts through the Holy Spirit for them to realize their need for forgiveness and for a Savior. Pray that you would guide us now as we go to prayer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.